I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest, the talented Mr. Quibby edition. It's Wednesday, April 15th, 2020. On today's show, good news, the butt of many Hollywood in-jokes, is now here for all of us to make fun of. Quibi is a new short-form streaming entertainment app, if I understand it correctly. And then John Prine, the great John Prine, has died from complications related to COVID-19 at the age of 73. We discuss a singing songwriting titan with Slate's own Carl Wilson. And finally, this week's comfort culture offering comes by way of Dana, the 1999 Anthony Minghella adaptation of Patricia Highsmith's deliciously wicked thriller, The Talented Mr. Ripley. I cannot wait to ask Dana why that movie is comforting to her. But first... <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm so weird. <laughs> I started watching it and realized, what the hell am I thinking? All right, I'll I'll account for myself later. Oh yes, you will. But first, we're joined from Los Angeles by uh, Julia Turner, who is the deputy managing editor of the L.A. Times. Her bailiwick, as I understand it, is arts and entertainment. Julia, hey, hello, hello. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Eager to talk about all three of these, which is always a good sign. And we're joined by Dana Stevens, who is the film critic for Slate.com, the unaccountable Dana Stevens. Welcome. Thank you, Steve. All right, guys, shall we dig in? Please. Let's Quibi. All right, here's what I understand about Quibi after uh, tinkering with it and reading about it for a couple of days. It's a streaming video service that plays uh, directly to your phone, streams onto your phone. And it seems to be aimed at your presumably pitiably truncated attention span. So it unfolds its various con- you know, kinds of content, which includes comedies, thrillers, docs, and short six to 10 minute episodes. Quibi comes to us via Jeffrey Katzenberg, of course, Hollywood executive royalty and Meg Whitman, best known, I think, for being at one point CEO of Hewlett Packard and uh, running for governor of California. It also comes with piles of funding in excess of a billion dollars. And Julia, as I understand it, you kind of previewed f- this for me when we were discussing about doing it, but it also comes via a chorus of of preemptive derision. It has been the butt, as I said in my intro, of Hollywood in jokes for a long time. We finally interacted with it. What did you uh, What did you make of it, especially relative to this chorus of, you know, very skeptical near booze? Oh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that people are necessarily, well, skeptical in jokes might be right. It's a huge bet, a huge bet. It's ne- it's 1.75 billion. It's nearly $2 billion that Katzenberg and Whitman have raised to essentially make short form video content and get people to pay for it, which raises the obvious question, who would pay for short form video content on the web or on your phone? because there's so much out there and it's free. And the concept seems to be to like clean up YouTube and make it look more like network TV. Everything's like more polished and tight and professional on it. But I think the the interest, the immense interest that Quibi has um, stirred up around Hollywood just comes from the fact that it's a huge bet. They're bringing in very, very big name creators and stars. There's a Reese Witherspoon show, there's a show where celebrities, including Jennifer Lopez, give away hundreds of thousands of dollars. There's, you know, in the future going to be a Spielberg movie on it. Like they're, they've got all of this incredible brand name talent 
you know, Chrissy Teigen plays a judge and kind of amazing, you know, out of the player, high concept shows, Murder House Flip, literally a reality show in which they redo houses in which people have been murdered. Um, a show called The Shape of Pasta about pasta shapes. Like, <laughs> I mean, you could see why people are amused and they're amused in part because uh, the idea seems so far-fetched. Like, who needs this? Um, and also, it's like hard to find someone in Hollywood who has n- who doesn't have a Quibi show. Like, they they have a lot of money to make a lot of content. And one thing that's really interesting about their strategy is to just barrage the user with content. They launched a week ago with a huge number of shows, and then they they dropped a bunch more episodes one week later. And I think one of the criticisms of Apple TV Plus and Disney Plus is it's pretty exciting to watch The Mandalorian, but when you're done with The Mandalorian, what else is there? Pretty fun to watch the morning show. Once you run out of morning show episodes, what's next? Um, they they've got a voluminous pipeline, which we can discuss. Yeah, I mean uh, Dana Julius sees it as you know a kind of high tone gloss to a high polish YouTube. I'd say they took two of the largest trends in video content delivery, which is Netflix and TikTok and kind of made a weird hybrid of these two. Um, but uh, maybe I just don't get it. And then they stuck it behind a paywall, which just seems to me a, a possibly a bridge too far. What did what did you make of this? It's, it's a very strange endeavor. I mean, as Willa Paskin writes in her, her really fun write-up of, of her experience of, of Quibi for Slate, this entire app proceeds on the assumption that people don't have enough to do on their phones already. And uh, and in fact, the main experience that you have while watching it is that it is turning your phone into this inert item that you just you want to get past the, the Quibi so that you can actually interact with that device in some way. I mean, I'm not someone who ever watches movies or TV on my phone. So already that feels wrong. Just that small, vertically oriented screen feels like the wrong space to be watching any sort of narrative or or documentary content. But the fact that it also effectively walls off your phone from anything else you would do with it just makes the six to 10 minutes of each episode that I watched of things feel feel very long. Did you guys not have a sense of being locked claustrophobically into this quibby cage while you were trying to use it i mean just something about that size and shape of screen and the usual function of that device combined with this thing that feels like very polished network content that has none of the kind of um spontaneity and and weirdness of something like youtube or tiktok just felt like a cage Mm. uh i mean well first of all if you object to the vertical content you can just flip your phone over did you have fun with that feature the fact that everything is shot. Ah, in I the, haven't tried that. But then, so does that mean that the actual composition of the shot changes? I mean, the aspect ratio of the show changes as you turn your phone? Dana, that's like their whole big selling point. They've come up with this crazy technology where seamlessly you can flip the phone from vertical to horizontal any moment you want. And the shot recomposes itself and everything has had to be shot with this funny technology where you can see both shots at the same time. And it totally affects the filmmaking, I think, um, because... There's just a lot of tight close-ups because that is what works. And then when you flip your phone horizontal, there's a lot of like walls on both sides of the head. <laughs> there's there's <laughs> if, a lot of if like. If I used that feature, I didn't notice it while using it. Put it that uh, way. Um, that's that that is a worthy point of note in and of itself. I didn't feel super trapped, but I didn't sit on a couch and watch Quibbies. I like played quibbies with one earpod in while making dinner, while brushing my teeth this morning, while getting dressed for bed last night. Like I I do sometimes watch TV on my phone 
as though it is a podcast and I kind of like listen to it and half look at it and don't really pay attention to it. Um, so I didn't feel trapped in it. Like I was hoping to text or tweet about whatever I was watching while I was watching it. Cause I was doing other stuff. Um, and I actually found it kind of pleasingly snackable. Like I was surprised by how pleasing it was to have a complete video experience in such a short period of time. And it struck me that although I have very much been in the camp of doesn't everybody have YouTube? Haven't there been a ton of paid short form web video services in the past? Why does anybody need this? Um, they were efficient. I mean, when you say that it wasn't a strange or delightful enough, I would point you to Dishmantled, the Titus Burgess reality <laughs> show in which hunks of completed dishes of food are catapulted out of some kind of food cannon at two aspirant cooks who are wearing like hazmat suits and blinders and then they have to lick the food off their bodies and the wall <laughs> and figure out what it is and then assemble a version of the dish and cook it within 30 minutes for such bemused celebrities as Jane Krakowski and Dan Levy of Schitt's Creek. Um, that was plenty weird and it was so short. It didn't have all the like stupid bullshit padding. Basically, I found myself surprisingly entertained and or appalled by most of what I watched and I just kept click, click, clicking through while I was kind of half watching, half listening. Uh, and I'm not sure I'll ever open the app again, but my experience within the app was sort of like, huh, all right, okay. That's my review. Yeah. I mean, the, I listen, the rule of thumb that I learned while I was still on Twitter about a year ago or whenever it was I bumped off was that the smarter my phone gets, the dumber I get. And so adding any functionality to my phone or attaching my eyes to it in, in novel ways that they aren't already to me is just almost a deal killer to begin with. The, the other thing is I don't, I don't really see the virtue of taking, you know, the super high production values and A-list celebrity, you know, oomph uh, of Netflix and, and just shrinking it in time or space. I don't understand why on a smaller screen and why shorter. Um, and also I will say this, if you were going to presume that I have an eight second attention span, make sure you grab me in the first seven seconds of your content. I watched the openings of three or four of these. I found them uniformly awful and I canceled my subscription. I had a very quick bite quibby experience, quibby appropriate experience, I think with it. But the one thing I will say in its favor is this. I think it's analogy, oddly enough, is to print media specifically genre fiction and what has happened for better and for worse to genre fiction over the last 20, 25 years, chapters have gotten so short. You know, Dan Brown picked up on this trend and wrote it off into commercial Valhalla and it's only been in a weird way doubled down on or halved or whatever. I mean, the chapters are only getting shorter, right? The, 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 you pick up a you know typical work of genre fiction right now. It presumes that you can only go from grabby opening to cliffhanger over a space of, I mean, you know, it's getting down to a thousand words. I mean, chapters are so short. So there is, Julia, a weird kind of logic to it. It, it would not shock me if we come back in five years and the quibification of uh, video content has uh, has happened. I mean, I guess the thing that sparked so much interest in Quibi among the narrow set of people in whom it has sparked so much interest is that it is an enormous bet that there is a hole in the landscape, that there's something we are not getting from the 20 streaming services that have launched in the last year, plus all of, you know, broadcast television and cable television plus the infinitude of podcasts, plus like video gaming, which probably takes up more human hours than any of the rest of these things, except for 
culture oddies like us never talk about it. Um, like that to, to kind of look at the landscape and be like, there's a whole thing missing. The problem is the stuff on your phone isn't good enough or it's too long and you can't flip it this way and that. And I'm going to raise nearly $2 billion and give it to all the fanciest people in Hollywood and fix that is just a, a crazily quixotic, hubristic act. Um, and I don't know. I, you guys are making me want to defend Quibi. Like, I found it pleasing that things were so short. Like, it, it's kind of fun. Maybe I just haven't found the right things. There is a wide variety of stuff on there. That is true. There's not a type of Quibi show. And you can tell even from just a couple hours of playing around with the app that, you know, as they continue to add more and more stuff, there will be more weird choices to watch. But most of the things I landed on in this initial exploration felt like something you might see, a thing that you see when you're in a captive audience. You know, like I remember taking a plane to Japan, a very long plane ride, and there were these special, I guess, probably created for the airline, little informational videos about Japan. And they all had the exact same sort of bland, um, you know, international, placeless feeling, but they were kind of hypnotically interesting. And some of the better or at least harder to turn away from stuff I came across on Quibi has that feeling. Julia, I laughed when you mentioned this, the shape of pasta because it was my my favorite Quibi hate watch. It oh is God. really, really funny to watch because of the vast disparity between the actual stakes of this guy's quest, this American chef who's going to Italy trying to learn about historic pasta shapes, which is a very cool thing to do, right? But the disparity between that and his really grandiose narration, he's like the anti-Samin Nusrat, right? Like all of the humility and kind of down-to-earthness that she brought to her quest for various foods around the world. This guy has none of and absolutely no self-awareness of that oh fact. And so I he's, found that very funny. He to seems watch. like the biggest tool on all of Quibi, and that is saying something. <laughs> Despite having really interesting subjects and concept, this incredible, pompous, tool of a chef from this restaurant that gets very good reviews in Venice out here that I haven't been to and had been planning to go to. And now I'm like, I never want to eat at Felix because you seem like such a doof, um, which is probably not the marketing that they want. And you also kind of imagine that like some executives were having lunch at Felix in Venice and were like, anything could be a Quibi show. Chef, come over here. What do you want to do? <laughs> like you could just see the origin of the show in the show. <laughs> um, anyway, I... Uh, enjoyed hate watching that one. I really did enjoy Dismantled. I think the show that's gotten um, the best reviews probably is Flipped. Did you guys watch that one? Yes, I watched one episode of Flipped, the Will Forte comedy, and I would I would happily watch that again. And talking about quirky offerings, I mean, that was one of the few things I watched that didn't feel like I was watching it on a, a plane and an airline had curated it for me. It was weird and strange and actually took advantage of the format of Quibi shortness. Yeah, I would send people to that. I mean, it's a 90-day free trial and everyone's stuck at home. I think it's kind of fun to poke around with. And Steve, you had like 88 more days to cancel. You didn't need to cancel so fast. Um, Dana, your comment about the airplane made me realize what this reminds me most of, which is taxi TV. It's totally taxi TV, except for you pay $7.99 a month for it with no ads. Like it's like little glossy bits that will just last you on the drive from 14th Street to 34th Street. Like it. it uh, well, my it, response to that is that the minute I get into a taxi, I immediately turn off the screen and I hate taxi TV. So yes. maybe that's why this, this quibby thing sort of struck me. It, it felt like it was in the wrong place in the same way that taxi TV does. Like, why is there a TV here telling me TV things? All right. It's quibby. Uh, I think it's five bucks ads, eight bucks, no ads. Download it. Check it out. 
send us an email. Let's uh, let's move on. Before we go any further, let's let's cover some business because we have some. Dana, what's up? Steve, the only business is to let you know that for our Slate Plus segment today, we're going to be talking about the virtual Saturday Night Live episode that aired this past weekend. This is not going to be the format going forward, but it was a it was a thing they decided to do as an experiment, and uh, it had some interesting results. So we're going to talk about SNL Live and Virtual in our Slate Plus segment. And as always, the place to go if you want to sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program is slate.com slash culture plus. Uh, the only other bit of business is to say that I think going forward for our ongoing uh, comfort watching segment, this is what we've been doing since we don't have new movies to talk about is going back and consulting some of our comfort watches from the past. We've now done a complete round where we've each chosen one. So it's Steve's turn again. And we decided that for the future, we should treat this as a movie club and tell people in advance what our comfort watch is going to be so that they can catch up with it and we can all spoil it and happily talk about it together. So Steve, starting this week, you're going to launch us into the world with um, your comfort title. Can you tell us what it is? Okay. Well, as reluctant as I am to reach into the innermost chamber of my heart and bring out into the sunlight and open air something that I'm confident Julia Turner, a la Godzilla and Bambi, will stomp on, I would like us to watch my all-time single greatest, most favorite piece of comfort culture, the 1983 Scottish movie, Local Hero. Which you've only referenced, what, 30 times on the show over the years, probably, and yet we have never watched it together? 30,000. I mean... What piece of culture cannot be compared favorably or un to Local Hero is is the actual premise of this Yes, exactly. I mean, it just... I, I have no distance from it and will try to achieve some when I watch it for the 19th time um, in order to talk about it with you guys. I'm actually very irony aside. I'm very eager to hear what both of you have to say about it. All right. looks like it's on uh, Apple or Amazon Prime. And um, I know Criterion finally, finally brought out um, an edition of the movie with an essay and all kinds of, you know, doodads and extras and voiceovers and stuff. So there's there's that as well. But uh, all right, check it out. Local Hero, starring Peter Rieger, directed by Bill Forsyth, 1983. Tread so lightly, please. Um, All right, moving on. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, well, John Prine was a late 60s open mic folky when none other than who, Dana, heard, discovered, and promoted him. <laughs> Wait, is Dana. this a quiz? It's a pop quiz. Pop quiz. Dana, who first heard and promoted uh, John Prine? None other than Roger Ebert. 
Well, he wasn't the first one, was he? Yeah. Oh, yes, he was. Yeah. John Prine was really nothing more than an open mic guy. He'd been prodded to go up there by friends who'd heard him play. And then I think someone said to him, Carl, you know these stories better than I do. I think he, he maybe offered a little critique of someone doing an open mic. And the guy said, you think you can do better? Well, he did better. But let me read what Roger Ebert said, because I think it just applies to everything Prine did since. He appears on stage with such modesty, he almost seems to be backing into the spotlight. He sings rather quietly, and his guitar work is good, but he doesn't show off. He starts slow, but after a song or two, even the drunks in the room begin to listen to his lyrics, and then he has you. And it was after that that Prine went on to record his debut album, self-titled for Atlantic Records, and he immediately won the admiration of the singer-songwriter world, absolutely. I mean, everyone from Bob Dylan, Bonnie Raitt, all of the royalty at the time of early 1970s singer songwriter them understood that the someone special had joined the ranks nonetheless he and carl you can correct me on this if i'm wrong but he always remained something of a songwriter songwriter in the richard thompson towns van zant mold he never really broke out big time commercially and he wore the iron collar known as the new bob dylan or the next bob dylan which a lot of people including springsteen got hit with in the early 70s but in the end he was just so incorrigibly himself for the next really 50 years you either got what he was doing or bugger off was the attitude of it but then in 2018 he came out with tree of forgiveness and he had a pretty big chart hit on his hand it was a very sweet very late career apotheosis we're joined now by carl wilson to talk about john prine who died uh this past week at the age of 73 carl welcome uh back to the show hi thanks for having me can you uh can you give us a song to kick off with I mean, yeah, why don't, we, why don't we kick off with something from that first album, um, which really was kind of like a classic debut album. He had this kind of store of songs that he'd been working up um, first on his mail route while he was working as a, as a mail carrier in Chicago um, and, then, and then in his, his club dates. Um, but he'd only been sort of professionally performing for six months or so, and the, there were like a half dozen songs on that album that continued to be staples of his repertoire and kind of classics of of American folk country um, for the rest of his life. So um, high among those would be Angel from Montgomery. So maybe let's use that to, to kick off. Make me So one of the things about that song that I think is is um, really telling, you know, and it, its most famous version is Bonnie Raitt's cover version, um, which became kind of a major part of her um, identity as a musician. But but the fascinating thing, you know, these were songs written by this like twenty three year old army veteran um, in Chicago, and that's a song about a middle aged woman in a frustrating marriage who um, is dreaming of any kind of escape uh, while sort of fatalistically knowing that that she's not going to have an escape. And this was kind of the thing that the young Prine did over and over again, writing from these really unpredictable subject positions and inhabiting these characters. Um, 
in ways that were just as sort of astonishing and beyond his years. And, and that was kind of what um, other songwriters immediately recognized about him. <laughs> you, were, you, were, you were saying that he served as kind of a musician's musician. And one of my favorite uh, quotes that I ran across while I was researching for this piece um, was an interview that he did with Stephen Colbert uh, six or seven years ago. This was during Colbert's like in-character pre-late night show. And he, he, he asked John, when you were a mailman, were you a mailman's mailman? Were you the kind of mailman that other mailmen wanted to get their mail from? <laughs> that was Brilliant. a perfect that's, comment on, on that side of his reputation. That's great. Carl, let me just, before I hand it over to my co-host here, uh, very quickly, you put him in the company, I thought very interestingly, of Twain and Frost, Mark Twain and Robert Frost. Um as someone who maybe they that all three of them get mistaken for a kind of down homey corn pony you know all american americana type but they're just cur- you know currents beneath currents of darkness and irony beneath that surface yeah i mean you know the idea about frost is partly something that i've taken from you because that's something you've often beaten the drum about um, with Frost. And, and yeah, I think particularly because um, in his later life, when he was post a couple of bouts of cancer and definitely showed the signs of having gone through things that way, he, he daily did develop this kind of congenial, you know, Americana music's uncle kind of personality that people really cherished. But that really tended to um, diminish the complexity of the songs and and the record that he built up over you know decades and decades and so yeah that that always seems to me like a a thing that is to be bewared. Yeah, I love that observation in your piece too, Carl. And I will confess that I, of course, knew a ton of John Prine songs because they're indelible and everywhere. But I didn't really know that they were John Prine songs. Songs, and I had I knew almost nothing about him and I had such an enjoyable and sad weekend just digging in and listening and reading all about him and loving his work and found myself particularly struck by the ornery weirdness of it and the sense that he was singing from all of these different fully conjured realities and sometimes he would you know, come up with lyrics and tell you the full scope of what was happening. I mean, the famous line about there's a hole in daddy's arm where all the money goes. But the song I loved the most is this one called Lake Marie, which has the quality of being sort of abstruse elliptical poetry about some weird, dark, murderous relationship, or maybe that's just what love is like, um, all subsumed under this kind of... uh, peaceful refrain, I, I, I just fell hard for the weirdness and, and specificity and confidence of the work. Um, and yeah, I, what a loss. Can we listen to a little bit of Lake Marie? That night she fell asleep in my arms Home in the tune to Louis Louis Oh baby We gotta go now Standing Standing by peaceful waters Standing by peaceful waters Oh 
Julia, that you've done an admirable job in a quick study of um, rendering yourself a really true blue prime fan, because that's that's sort of that that cut is is especially a song that's that's prized by the connoisseurs. And yeah, it's so weird. It starts off telling this possibly real, possibly just made up North American legend about these two lakes, and then it becomes the story about a couple whose marriage is dying, <laughs> going off to try and renew it um, in uh, around those lakes. And then it transitions in this very strange way into sort of evoking this serial murderer who's storing bodies around that lake. Um, and, and it's almost a little sort of short story anthology in itself. And it combines this very, some very sort of relatable human domestic details with these kinds of fantastical um, elements. And that's something that, that Prine did in amazing ways. And it was always this kind of like, I said in the piece, you know, it was like there was darkness and then a silver lining to the darkness and then an undercurrent of other darkness under the silver lining. Um, and that that was sort of one way that things would work. And then sometimes that would be reversed and the, the brightness would be the thing that predominated and there would just be sort of small elements of darkness and cynicism and, and skepticism sort of smuggled into it. But there was always that interplay between Never, never seeing the world in 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 any kind of black and white way, but always, always these shades, and and that was that you know again that's the kind of thing that made him kind of a one of a kind master. Carl, that leads perfectly into what I I wanted to say about Prine, which is I mean first of all that he has this curious quality that especially became clear in the conversations after he died of being a permanent cult figure, right? I mean he seems like at once an incredibly important figure in country, folk, roots, whatever you want to call this kind of music, and someone that lots of people might not know they know, or they might know his song, you know, like Angel from Montgomery by Bonnie Raitt, covered by someone else, that he has this kind of permanent secret quality. And it was great to see people who didn't know him uncovering that secret. But for me, I think his first emergence into my consciousness was probably the 1999 album In Spite of Ourselves, which is a somewhat unusual introduction to him because he didn't write most of the songs on it. I believe he wrote only one. But when that album came out in 1999, I remember loving it so much and having many friends who fell for it too. And it was really the humor and wit of those duets. It's all duets with different female country singers. And so most of the songs are about some sort of domestic discord or sometimes domestic happiness, but that has this sort of undercurrent of sadness. And it's exactly this sort of silver lining with the dark underneath it, with more silver underneath that, that, that you were talking about. I thought maybe we could hear the title cut from that album, which he sings with Iris Dement, who also just has this unforgettable and wonderful tart country voice. She don't like her eggs all runny She thinks crossing her legs is funny She looks down her nose at money She gets it on like the Easter bunny She's my baby, I'm her honey I'm never gonna let her go He ain't got late in a month of Sundays Caught him once and he was sniffing my undies He ain't too sharp but he gets things done Drinks his beer like it's oxygen But he's my baby And I'm his honey Never gonna let him go 
I mean, I, I, that's just so wonderful. That's, that's exactly the character songwriting you were talking about, Carl, that both of those people immediately emerge as these, as these separate, clear characters, right? Singing in their own voices this time. And, you know, also just such a great sense of humor. I mean, hilarious, hilarious songwriting. Oh, yeah. And, and, and that humor is a big part of his persona, too. And, you know, also in the live shows, you know, he was known for telling stories nearly as much as he would play songs in a lot of shows, which sort of started out as a thing out of nervousness and gradually became a thing that he was beloved for. You know, I mean, the funny thing is that the, for all the obscurity and sort of non-hit making of his career, what, what he often said was that what he had instead of hits were these very intimate relationships that people had with the music. A lot of people talk, would talk to him about having grown up with his songs and their parents playing them in the car or on road trips or around a campfire on camping trips. And there, you know, and I've had that experience too. I think the way that I first came to know his music um, was through people like singing those songs at parties and that kind of thing. And so it's this, it's this other way of being a music star, you know, that is a lot less celebrity oriented and more about the lives of these songs that I think felt very much like they lived in the world. You know, and that song, that song is a good example. It's just like, you immediately see those people and also those people are nothing special, you know? And, and that's, that's something that, that it's rare for a songwriter to be able to carry off. Yeah, I have a sort of ironic relationship to John Prine in that he took a song from an even more obscure, more cultish singer-songwriter, Blaze Foley, and actually made it something of a bigger hit, the song Clay Pigeon, which is just one of the great covers uh, songs of all time. Yeah, for sure. That's the song. You know, later in his life, Prime wasn't writing very much. He would go, you know, decade between albums in that, those last couple of decades. And, um, and when he came across that Blaze Foley song, he said that it, it seemed like a song that he'd forgotten to write. Mm. I mean, that is just, I mean, it, we shouldn't spend a second playing a song not written by John Prine, but uh, that's that's a great tune. Carl, uh, you want to pick something for us to go out on? or Yeah, why don't, why don't we end on, you know, he wrote a lot about death. I wrote about this a lot in my piece and a lot of visions of the afterlife. Some of them kind of very eccentric, but also sort of in the gospel tradition. And, and he had a kind of interesting mixed relationship to that. I think partly because his father died um, young when um, Prime was just starting his own career. And I think his songwriting is a little haunted by that. But on his last album, Tree of Forgiveness, um, the song When I Get to Heaven uh, presents this very kind of funny and, um, and, and warm-hearted vision of the afterlife which is pretty much dominated along with re- reuniting with family and friends. It's dominated by being able to take up all the vices that he'd had to drop at various points in his life and start smoking and drinking again. Um, and it, yeah, it's a, it's a really joyous way to remember someone who, um, you know, didn't die young, but, but was taken by this virus in a way that um, after he'd already survived cancer and all of that felt, felt very deeply unfair. And this song is a nice way to imagine his spirit living on. When I get to heaven, I'm going to shake God's hand. Thank him for more blessings than one man can stand. Then I'm going to get a guitar and start a rock and roll band, check into a swell hotel, 
Ain't the afterlife grand? And then I'm gonna get a cocktail, vodka and ginger ale. Yeah, I'm gonna smoke a cigarette that's nine miles long. I'm gonna kiss that pretty girl on the tilt the world. Cause this old man is going to town. All right, well, uh, Carl Wilson, music critic for Slate. Carl, thanks thanks for coming back on the show and uh, hope you're staying safe up in Toronto. I am, thank you. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find life and art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. The year 1999 saw a lavish adaptation of Patricia Highsmith's Talented Mr. Ripley, the novel of which uh, uh, I'm more than a fan of that book. I just want to stipulate right up front. It's one of my favorite things of all time. It tells the story of a young bored, uh, somewhat empty and self-hating American named Tom Ripley, who ends up in Italy seduced by the lifestyle and charismatic person of Dickie Greenleaf. Dickie is everything Tom Ripley isn't. He's rich, self-confident, beautiful, socially connected, charismatic, and just absolutely perfectly louche. What follows is one of the great psychological thrillers ever written. I mean, the amazing thing about this book, we'll get into it a little bit, I'm sure, is it's, it's, it's perhaps the all-time greatest imposter novel and uh, the first Ripley book and all of its sequels together make up one of the all-time great serial killer sagas. Uh, they're as psychologically probing as they are wicked and just completely entertaining. And Highsmith was just a, a, a genius, a genre writer of a completely different level, really. The film adaptation came out during the high imperial phase of Miramax films. Uh, Anthony Minghella had just directed The English Patient. Matt Damon was a very young Hollywood darling of uh, Goodwill Hunting fame at that point, and Gwyneth, of course, was Gwyneth. And Philip Seymour Hoffman was cresting into the epithet greatest actor of his generation. Jude Law was just incomparably charismatic and beautiful in this film. Uh, and the on-location shooting and the period shoot, they were both just absolutely sublime. Uh, it's an amazing-looking and amazingly acted film. If nothing else, let's listen to a clip. Everybody should have one talent. What's yours? Forging signatures. Uh Telling lies, impersonating practically anybody. That's three. Nobody should have more than one talent. Okay. Do an impression. Now? The only talent my son has is for cashing his allowance. What? Oh, I like to sail. Believe me, I love to sail. Instead, I make boats. Stop! Other people sail them. It's too much. You're making all the hairs on my neck stand up. Oh, yes, jazz. Oh, jazz. Let's face it. It's just, uh, it's just insolent noise. I feel like he's here. <laughs> Horrible, like the old bastard's here right now. Good. That's brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> all right, Dana, I I really want to know why you love this movie, but I, I have to begin by asking, why would this be your comfort movie <laughs> pick? <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly what my couchmate asked me last night when I said, oh, goody, goody, I got the comfort movie this week. Let's watch Talented Mr. Ripley. And while we thoroughly enjoyed it, I 
I realized as soon as it was about 10 minutes into the movie that it is extremely disquieting and disturbing. And I mean, obviously, it's a murder mystery, right? Like it's not it's not um, Paddington 2, <laughs> like your choice. Some of my other possible choices would have been much softer. And I do love tons of movies that have almost no conflict in them whatsoever. But insofar as this movie is an escapist comfort movie, here's my case for that. It's that once this movie is on, you can't think about anything else. To me, it is one of those cable traps where for, you know, anytime it happens to be playing on television, I fall into the trap of just sitting there and watching as much of it as is left. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, as you described, just the really sumptuous setting, all these Italian locations that it takes place in, the incredible costumes, you know, just the the gorgeous period design. And all these actors who are now, you know, the middle-aged A-listers who are in every other movie are just so, so young and so at the height of their physical charm. It's just fantastic to see them all bouncing off each other. And yes, the story is thoroughly sick and twisted. And no, it is probably not as great as the Patricia Highsmith novel itself, although she is one of the rare writers who can write great books that can be made into great movies, as many of her books have been. Um, I don't know how to make the case for comfort watching other than to say this is to me a completely transporting mystery. Um, not really a mystery because you know what's going on the entire time, not a whodunit in that sense, but a mystery in the sense that you really never know what's going on in Tom Ripley's mind, the Matt Damon character. And you see him thinking on his feet as he did in that scene that we heard where he bursts into this perfect imitation of the Jude Law character's father and you know thereby deepens their relationship, but also kind of gets some leverage to manipulate him. There's just, there's so much sneaky manipulation happening in behind Matt Damon's face in this movie. And that is the big driver of, of the pleasure for me. Okay. Before I turn to Julia, I have to ask you quickly, were you a fan? of the book when you saw the movie? I don't think I had read the book. No, in 1999, I'm pretty sure I had not read anything by Patricia Highsmith. And I still have only read this book of all the mysteries. I haven't delved further into into the Ripley series. Um, but no, why? What if I had? How would that make it different? Oh, uh, we will get there. But first, Julia, uh, was this a movie you'd seen already? And uh, what'd you make no, of it? No, I'd never seen it, even though I saw The English Patient and was a, the sort of person who went and saw the big Miramax movies in the late 90s. And I don't know. Somehow this one missed me, and I knew all I knew was that Matt Damon was conniving, and I was pretty sure that the person who dies, well, one of the people who dies, died. Um, anyway, I kind of knew the plot through cultural osmosis, but it did not in any way take away the pleasures of this film, which are so extraordinary. And I am not at all mystified that this is Dana's comfort food, even though it's so menacing because the fundamentally the menaces were a little bit ridiculous. I mean, maybe I'm, maybe you disagree with me on this, but like the film's second key bludgeoning and it is a 20 year old film based on an even older book. So I don't feel too uh, terrible about spoiling it, but I won't go, I won't be more specific, but there is this in this, the film's second bludgeoning <laughs> caused me to like burst out in a like assault of laughter. Cause it's so ludicrous and kind of, Goofy. The weapon, um, the murder weapon is just so <laughs> yes. good. The bourgeois bust, the contemptible bourgeois bust. Um, it's just, uh, it, it, the although the menace is real and the kind of psychological darkness is very compelling and, and acted by all of these very fine actors, the whole thing feels kind of ludicrous and campy but also incredibly beautiful and also just you know out of a Condé Nast Traveler 
spread. Like who wasn't who wouldn't want to hang out in Manji and Remo and Rome and Venice and you know they're just strolling through the Piazza Navona and you know the the, the kind of idle luxness of the settings and the costumes is also a pleasure. So the whole thing felt like camp fun to me. I mean, am, am I reading it wrong? Is, 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 am I revealed to be a Ripleyan psychopath no, for finding this movie really kind of hilarious? It camp when I watch it. Yeah. There, there, I mean, there, there's tons of wit in it, right? In the dialogue and the banter also in, you know, things like the, the, mur- the choice of murder weapon. But I don't read it as camp when I watch it at all. I guess I feel a lot of um, uh, identification with the Matt Damon character in a way. I mean, even to a greater degree than the book, I believe. And Steve, maybe you can back me up on this because you are more of a Highsmith reader than me. But I think that the the homoerotic subtext is brought to the surface even more. And for 1999, oh. that was... Not right. that was not necessarily par for the course, right? It's pre Brokeback Mountain days, and this is basically a movie about Matt Damon falling in love with Dickie Greenleaf, the Jude Law character, and sort of finding a way at once right. to be him, <clears throat> to have him, to steal his girl, but not to have to ac- actually kiss his girl because he wants to kiss Dickie himself. And there's just so much right on the surface homoeroticism that could be read as camp if it were not about an era and in a way from an era when those truths were not often speakable or seeable on scene. Right. So when I first saw this movie, I had a unprincipled resistance to it and a semi-principled resistance to it. The unprincipled resistance was I just, I really found Goodwill Hunting to be a dishonest movie to its core. And I, in my mind, tarred Matt Damon with that as the co-writer, co-creator of the movie and the star of it. I, I just had a huge chip on my shoulder about that film. And so I, I couldn't see Matt Damon as uh, as Ripley at the time, which leads into my semi-principled resistance, which is that the book is is a it's a real masterpiece of genre writing and literary writing. I mean, really, it's it's both. And Highsmith, I regard just as a complete genius of American letters, and one of the great, you know, queer writers, one of the great suspense writers, you know, uh, one of the great. Uh, you know, precociously, she writes Strangers on a Train when she's qu- quite young, and Hitchcock takes it up and makes her and it very famous. One of the great expats, you know, alienated American expats. A, you know, uh, this book, the book in some ways is a very self conscious answer text to the classic uh, tale of a, an American, go- young American rich kid gone to seed in Europe, The Ambassadors by Henry James, which is mentioned by name in The Talented Mr. Ripley. Um, I regard the book as like a, a, just a, you know, it is in the, in the, in the Met pantheon. And I was resistant to the changes that they made. But let me say quickly, rewatching it, what I liked, because I liked it a lot more the second time around in 2020. I liked Matt Damon as Ripley. Uh, I don't think he's the perfect Ripley, but he's a good one. And um, and uh, he does a very good job in this film. I mean, his, his performance is remarkable. I think Jude as Dickie is, is uh, revelatory. He's so incredibly beautiful. Uh, it's impossible not to imagine, you know, any man, woman, child, rock, space alien, you know, a uh, molecule not falling somewhat in love with them. Um, Gwyneth is, I think, terrific as Marge. I love the way that they expanded and fleshed out the role of Marge in the film to become something of the conscience of the movie. Um, there's a homosocial conspiracy unfolding around her that includes every man in the movie, but principally involves Dickie Greenleaf's father, who, because he wants so badly to 
bond with Tom Ripley as the quote unquote good son, doesn't see that Ripley is a sociopath and can't believe Marge, who's the one person who pieces together what's actually happened. That's very, very, very shrewdly done. Um, and a fem- you know genuinely feminist gesture to to Highsmith. Uh, the way the movie looks is unbelievable. You're right, Julia. It's it's Condé Nast times a, a billion. It's really it's really quite it's quite thrilling to be in those places and in those scenes. Uh, and Hoffman, Philip Seymour Hoffman, is just perfect as Freddie Miles, this bloated, really louche beyond louche shithead who really destroys this idyllic first third of the movie, which I love. That's the part of the movie that I absolutely loved. It perfectly gets what it would be like for the insecure, callow, very American, lower class, you know, guy to try to, what it would be like to, to try to insinuate yourself quite cunningly into a social circle to which you do not belong while, while doing it seeming naive. I mean, that's, that's the real trick is you have to seem as though you have zero agenda that you're actually quite unformed and naive and kind of making yourself their plaything when in fact you're making them your plaything that's that's incredibly well done in this film then the really strong adaptive choices come in and i don't agree with them queering the story in one sense makes total sense because there is a homoerotic subtext in the novel and highsmith wrote herself a semi-closeted lesbian wrote about um, gay culture in the 40s and 50s and the closet. But it changes the essential story because the essence of the book is, I want to be him. And that's the universal power of the book, I think, is we all have been, we've all had this sun shine on us from a charismatic personality who we love that basking feeling of our skin in that sunlight and we want to be that person. We envy them. And there's an edible and murderous content to that at some level and that's what the book is bringing to the surface it's taking that part of us that wants to kill the thing we love because it overwhelms us in its power uh and and which i think is a part of any normal personality a very small part hopefully of any normal personality it makes it the dominant feature of this character ripley who who then becomes this kind of weird stand-in for a side that the reader dare not nurture in him or herself and through all, f- I think it's four or five Ripley books, you just, you are an accomplice to this man's ruses, which involves serial murder. And and so you begin to feel implicated and guilty in a weird way. And that's, that's fucking genius. The movie's essence, when you really queer it, when you bring the homoeroticism to the surface is not, I want to be him, it's I want him. And that actually, in a weird way, I think simplifies the psychological power uh, of the book. Uh, and making it into a movie. And then I worried, and I am very on the fence of this. This was a Weinstein production down the line. I mean, uh, you know, I worry that in a weird way, and Dana, you can absolutely throw this back in my face. I might be wrong, that they were playing both sides of it here, that they were both attempting to be daring uh, in playing with the closet in 99 and kind of bringing, you know, an A-list, very straight-seeming actor like Damon you know, bringing him into the realm of, of um, you know, uh, essentially a gay character. At the same time, they were playing to a wide release audience and saying, this person's t- t- savagery and this person's murderousness, well, you, you average American viewer, can, can chalk, chalk up to the fact that he's gay. And I thought that that was, I, I was, 
I was I was uncomfortable with that. Yeah, in a weird I had way. that response too, Steve. I mean, it, it made me want to go read a bunch of really smart essays about Patricia Highsmith's, um, you know, relationship to queer literature and queer art. But yeah, you basically are left thinking like, oh, this guy's a psychopath murderer because he's gay. And the class suggestions, I mean, even just the subtlety with which, you know, he's a cultural aspirant, so he loves opera, but he has to pretend to not love opera and love jazz to get down with the the youth of the rich who take their opera for granted and think it's fusty and want a new way to show their taste and class. You know, the, the kind of finesse with which it's traversing that keyboard and then the kind of plonk plonkiness of the way it's thinking about sexuality are discordant. I, I totally agree. Yeah, I hear what you guys are saying. It, the, the movie is of its time in that way. I disagree that it's making it seem as if being gay is in itself to be sociopathic. And one counterbalance to that, I think, is the character who emerges, Peter, the character who emerges late in the movie, who's sort of the second love object uh, for Matt Damon. Or rather, it's it's more as if the Matt Damon character is a love object for him. And without giving anything away about the ending, which I think is so ambiguous as to be slightly disappointing, there is a sense that there could have been a real relationship, an actual meaningful and non-sociopathic love relationship between those two men if Matt Damon's character, Tom Ripley, had not been a sociopath, right? I mean, I don't think that there is a world posited in this movie in which queer equals murderous, but it is but it is clearly of its time in that it's a movie directed by straight men, starring straight men, you know, playing this this relationship that's on the surface queer. And it's impossible not to feel that watching it now. But I think you're also maybe not giving credit to the degree to which somebody who had just made an Academy Award winning movie about a straight romance and could just easily have made the biggest hunk of glazed corn in the world decided to make a movie that did have these not just undercurrents, but, you know, pretty much a, a straight up text of um, of queer romance. Yeah, no, no, no. I give you that. I mean, listen, my problem is I'm a Ripley completist and a Ripley deadhead, but I have exceedingly good news for everyone within the sound of my voice. That's us. The Ripley TV series is coming and it stars Hot Priest. <laughs> Whoa. He, he, that's the, You're really burying the lead. That should have actually opened our segment. Yeah, open, closed, in the middle. I mean, I that's what I read on the internet. So I hope it's true. But that that is a very, very good piece of casting. You are meant to be really, really disoriented by Ripley. You're supposed to be immensely attracted to him in some weird way and and just as equally repelled. The attraction repulsion powers of Ripley are are extreme. And um, it's very hard to get that for an actor or a mil, or a film to get that right. It's, a, it's, it's what it's what Highsmith nailed. So if you haven't read those books, I really would send you to them. Dana, I'm going to give you the final final here. This was your pick. Yeah, I feel a little iffy now about having chosen this as my comfort movie after all we've said, but I still contend that most of our audience, anybody who has the stomach for just a wee bit of bludgeoning in their comfort movie should should give this a try. And I think ultimately where it triumphs is just simply, I mean, this may be a very middle brow movie normie watcher thing to say, but it's just on the level of craft. I mean, the editing is by Walter Murch, one of the great editors in Hollywood history. It's incredibly smooth. The, uh, the jazz soundtrack is beautiful. Um, the costumes, again, I mean, there's individual outfits, Julia, that I feel like you and I could have sidebars on. Just Gwyneth's coat with that heart-shaped opening oh with the satin God, lining. Yeah. Oh, my God. 
<laughs> and so the whole movie is full of, of moments like that. And I cannot imagine that it would not um, while away a happy two hours in your quarantine. All right. Well, it's the talented Mr. Ripley. I th- I caught it on Netflix. So it's uh, there for the asking. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. If you've seen the movie, read the book, whatever, pop us an email. And uh, now let's move on. All righty, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? I am going to come out of our John Prine segment with a Prine-related endorsement. So I'm sure that you guys share my love and eternal uh, fandom and devotion for our former colleague at Slate, John Dickerson. And as it happens, John Dickerson last year in 2019, when he was still doing CBS This Morning, uh, interviewed John Prine at his home in Nashville. And part of that interview aired on CBS This Morning, but only a small part. There was actually an hour and a half long full-length sit-down that the two of them had, including a guitar coming out and them playing some John Prine songs together. There is actually a full-length cut, an hour and a half long sit-down between the two of them that includes guitars coming out and the two of them playing some John Prine songs together that is just such a pleasure and a joy to watch. Um, I, maybe the two of you remember that, that Dickerson on, on Slate Retreats used to bring along his guitar and Angel from Montgomery was one of his go-to songs that he would be singing in, in a bar somewhere while people in the next room were wildly dancing. He'd be, you know, strumming away and singing some John Prine. And it's really nice to see the two of them together and just to see the delight that the two Johns seem to take in each other's company. So go on YouTube if you just search for John Dickerson, John Prine, or At Home with the Songwriting Legend is the uh, the title that it's filed under. Uh, it's worth watching the entire thing. Mm. Yeah, I saw the, I just saw the aired segment and that was wonderful. Um, Julia, what do you have? Okay, I have an endorsement and a quibble with a popular endorsement at the same time. As our listeners know, I'm deep in the Harry Potter verse, reading them with my children. We're now midway through book four. Things are about to get dark. I'm not sure my seven-year-olds are ready for where the book is going, particularly the passage I remember where I think Ron just like sits in a tent on a bleak moor alone for a long time, but that's not for a few more books. Anyway, because we've so exhausted our voices reading Harry Potter all the time for the last six weeks, um, we decided to enlist the famed audiobook version by Jim Dale, available on Audible and other places you can get audiobooks. I have seen so much praise for how great these audiobooks are over the years, and they are, in fact, great um, because we can't go anywhere. We've done a couple just scenic drives the last couple weekends just to get as a, I think this is a great Dana phrase, a bit of an eye scrub and see some different vistas than our own backyard um, and let Jim Dale read Harry Potter to us during that time. And he is great, a master of pacing and characterization and almost everything except one thing. His voice of Hermione sucks. <laughs> um, and I just want, I'm so eager to know if our listeners, who I think have recommended this to us before on Twitter and an email and other people who are fans of this book, like he turns her into this kind of breathily whinging worrywart. Uh, and it's such a bummer I, to, you know, and I, I, I say that still full of admiration for the, for the read out loudathon, and still grateful to have someone to help spell me and my husband as we read these now seven, 800 page books to our children. But JK Rowling didn't totally nail all the gender stuff. And then this reading of it compounds it. So I'm just dying to know what our listeners think of Jim Dale's Hermione my husband and I now only talk in that voice to each other and just kind of breathily whinge at each other. But the pasta, Harry, please. Oh. You know, um, so it's real fun over in our house. 
Um, where we pretend to be Harry Potter characters performing domestic Californian tasks. And I still recommend it with the quibble. Yeah, Julia, that's so interesting. I've heard those audiobooks countless times. I mean, they are just sort of oral wallpaper in our house and, and have been for years. And Jim Dale's interpretation of every single character is so dead on and so different and so specific that I even sometimes think that the actors in the movies are copying Jim Dale, mm-hmm. especially Hagrid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he sounds exactly like him. But you're right that his Hermione is strangely off and other female characters like McGonagall, he voices perfectly. So I wonder what's going on there. Is it that she's a young woman? I don't I wouldn't say that his reading of her is misogynistic exactly, but it does not bring out the strength of the character. And obviously, when you read those books, the secret heroine the whole time, the one saving everybody's bacon at every turn is Hermione. And that should come out in his. Voice. Yeah, she's she seems weaker than she does on the page. I mean, and even on the page, I think J.K. Rowling has acknowledged that you know, that some of the things, some of the ways in which she characterized Hermione, she's had second thoughts about. But I think it's actually technical. I think that the way he tries to make the voice sound light and more feminine involves infusing it with more breath. Like all of his female voices are a little bit breathier. Um, And somehow the combination of her always pleading with them to be more responsible or not break rules or whatever, except for the time when her spine flares up and she breaks the rules with the best of them. Um, it just it just turns her into this like weird sop. It's so strange. Um, but I mean, look, yeah, she's a killjoy. Yeah, and like he, you know, I, I say this quibble in in the undercurrent of praise because he really the thing that's so stunning about it is just how well he draws everybody else. The Snape too. I mean, Alan Rickman's Snape is such an indelible character, and I imitate Alan Rickman when I read it out loud and try to make it cold and effectless. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's the the Dale Snape is similar. Anyway, never going to think about anything but Harry Potter again for the next like three months. So get ready for just a string of Harry Potter related endorsements. Um, <laughs> but that's mine for this week. Uh, love it. Uh, all right. So mine comes with a very quick backstory, which is that um, uh, I love the Australian indie band, The Luxmiths, but I also am capable of something like critical disinterest and i am suspicious of things that remind me a little bit too much of myself or even more suspiciously what i would have made myself if i had an ounce of talent and so i i though i really believe in that band and i really believe in the powers of concision and incision of its main songwriter marty donald uh i think he is kind of a genius and a totally unheralded genius i'm reluctant to push it on anybody much less the whole world so they've been you know name checked a few times in the course of our podcast and then deliriously we got to go out to dinner with them down in um australia talked about that a little bit but so i pushed them on jody rosen i believe on mic on this show and i got a text that just made my heart sing jody said i love the luxmiths unreservedly marty donald has made my life much better thank you so much for putting me onto this and if there's anything in the world that jody rosen and i agree on then i think it can be safely said it's not you know, simply a part of my own fatuous canon 
um, but actually is probably intrinsically good. So I have made a playlist of it, and this is what I sent Jody, and I think we've even posted it, but it's I think it's about a 13, 12, 13 song playlist of my favorite of their songs. And I will pu- I'm gonna push it. I'm really gonna push it again. I, I think that those are remarkable songs. You have to be up for what they're doing. And you can't OD on it or it will start to cloy. But there's a real poignancy and wit to that songwriting. And it is those th- that music deserves to be better known. I really believe that. And then let me quickly say, bringing it more into the present tense and the realm of you know public consumption. Do you guys know the band Cigarettes After Sex? <laughs> no. So good. I mean, they're, my uh, older daughter loves them and they pop up. Um, repeatedly on her playlists as we tootle around. Um, I'm giving her driving lessons now, which is an adventure in and of itself in both terror and parental joy. But, um, and every time I'm like, who is this? And she's like, it's that, it's cigarettes after sex. And now I finally hear it. And it's a wonderfully like gender indeterminate singer. It's really got this incredible, pardon the expression, like post-coital melancholy appropriate to the title of the band. They have two records. Every time a cigarette's after sex song comes on, I'm like, turn it up, turn it up. This is amazing. What is this? I really, really like what they're doing. This is not a secret. They've done an NPR Tiny Desk concert that got 1.3 million views. People are probably laughing because they've been listening to them for seven years or whatever. I, I don't know. But to me, it was new. I really love it. You guys should check it out. I think you'd like it. Thank you, Julia. Thank you. Thank you, Dana. Thank you, Stephen. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, that's slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Please do. We love it. We got some great ones this week. Uh, we will get back to you. We have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Jessamyn Molly. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Please stay safe, stay home, and stay safe, and be well. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you soon. Mm-hmm.